church. Good to see everybody. If you're new around here, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad that you could join us today. You could be our guest today in the house of God. Um, if you want to grab a Bible or if you're going to use your phone or device of some kind, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. As you're turning there, I want to say, as, as John also mentioned earlier, if you're new, we would love to connect with you. A couple ways to do that. You could fill out the Connect card and give us your contact information so we can follow up with you, get to know you a little bit, figure out how Strong Tower could be a blessing in your life. But also, today, on the second Sunday of every month, we have what's called Starting Point. It's just about 15 minutes next door in the gym uh, just to get to know our staff and leaders a little bit and ask questions and it's real quick, but just a great way to get to know you and, and meet you. So if you have some time afterwards, it looks like the rain is starting to come in. You can see the, the darkness in the clouds over there. Uh, you might have to hang out for a little while. So if you're bored while it's pouring outside, uh, we would love to have you a starting point. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, looking at verses 23 to 26. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Amen. This is the Word of God. I want to tag our text today, A Choosing Faith. A Choosing Faith. Let's begin with prayer. Father, uh, we thank you this morning that we could gather together in your name, whether here in this building or online. Um, as our church, uh, many folks are still scattered about. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us in this moment as we come to your Word. We ask that you would... Um, Speak to us through your Holy Spirit what you would want to speak. Open our hearts, open our minds, our ears to hear what you would say to us. And God, as you are here in this place, may we be transformed. Transformed by your very presence. Because it's you that, it's you that changes us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up in Florida uh, as a true Floridian, I, I was uh, very aware of sinkholes. Sinkholes were a common phenomenon. In fact, one stat I, I read this week said that there's some 6,000 sinkholes a year in the state of Florida. That's a lot of sinkholes. And if you've ever seen one or maybe seen a picture or seen one on the news, uh, it's, it's kind of a shocking thing to, to see a sinkhole, especially the big sinkholes. I mean, you, you see what looks like just a normal setting. There's maybe cars along the road and uh, everything in the, in the community looks normal. And then all of a sudden, the, the ground literally collapses and swallows up whatever was there. I mean, it's just the strangest thing. It, it can be shocking, it can be deadly, it can be terrifying. I mean, it is a strange phenomenon. And when people see sinkholes, the first reaction most of us have is, how in the world did this happen? It seems like it came out of nowhere. Like, how does the ground just collapse under you? And then you realize as you research, you look more into it, or maybe you're familiar with sinkholes, you find out that sinkholes were not something that just happened. In fact, it might have been something that was happening under the ground for years or decades or even centuries. 
There are these small changes, small movements, small uh, adjustments underneath the surface that you can't see. And so underneath the surface, there's a lot that's been happening, but it's just been so small, so hidden that you didn't even know it. And then suddenly this major effect, and it changes everything. That's kind of how choices work in our life. That on the outside, it, it looks as if there's this major thing that's happened in maybe your life or someone else that, that you care about. And, and then you get a little bit below the surface and you realize there's this long string of small, daily, almost hidden choices that happen. And over time, over maybe a few months or years or decades, there's a collapse. In fact, there was a sociologist a couple years ago who was talking about choices. He was doing research on choices and what that looks like in our culture today. And, and he was doing research particularly on different cultures and how they see their choices in life. And so he gathered together 100 American uh, college students, and then he gathered together 100 Japanese college students. And he had them take a single piece of paper, and on the first side, you know, the front side of the paper, write out all the choices that you want to make for your life. The things that you want to have ownership over. And so the American students, they're writing out things like, you know, I want to uh, have a choice of who I marry. I want to have a choice about what career I have. I want to have a choice about what I wear or how I eat my food or all these different things, right? They filled up the front side. And then on the back side, you're supposed to write all the choices you want other people to make for you. And it was almost blank for most of the hundred students. Now you go to the opposite side, you go to the Japanese students and, and they fill out the front and they're writing out lots of things that they want to make decisions on, but then when they flipped the paper over, they were able to write quite a few things that they wanted other people to make decisions for their life. Fascinating. And, and he, what his study found was actually four times more likely, four times more categories, sorry, four times more categories were the Americans wanting choice. And so author David Brooks, he was writing about this, this study and he was talking about how uh, in America we, we just love choice, but not only do we love choice, we have so many of them. So many choices. And this, this is what he said. He said, uh, Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in human history. We can choose between a broader array of foods, media sources, lifestyles, and identities, and therefore, it's becoming incredibly important to learn how to choose well. To learn how to choose well. Because those choices, they may be small, they may be sudden or, or, or hidden, but, but then there's this huge effect over a course of time. And so as we continue this series today that we've, we started before Easter and now we're picking back up, this series through the, uh, the chapter in, in Hebrews, chapter 11, that kind of lays out what the early church was going through. And the early church we've been talking about in, in this time period was going through so much suffering, and because of their suffering, they were having these daily choices. They were having these daily choices which came down to, am I going to choose Jesus or am I going to choose comfort? Am I going to choose Jesus or am I going to choose the pressure of my culture? 
And so this was their daily choice. They're, they're making small decisions, but they're also making big decisions. And, and these choices were making the effect of their life in this major move of, am I going to stay with Jesus or am I going to leave? And so we've been calling this series Enduring by Faith because this chapter really lays out what kind of faith helps you endure to the end. And what we see in this, in this chapter, or, or sorry, in this text from the chapter, we, we see that this kind of faith actually has to choose to endure. That there's this choice that we make on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis. It's a choice that changes everything. And so if you're taking notes today, I want to ask this question, how do we live a life that chooses Christ in our culture today? First, there has to be a fearless resistance. This is the first point, a fearless resistance. Look at me at verse 23. It begins like this. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now the author of Hebrews uh, has been walking through various characters in the Old Testament, and now we come to Moses. Moses, the greatest of all of Israel's folks. I mean, Moses was the greatest of the prophets because he spoke face to face with God on a regular basis, communicating what God would say to his people. Moses was the greatest of all the lawgivers. His name was literally synonymous with the law itself. Moses was the greatest historian. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. He, he, he wrote all of these books writing down the history of God's people. And so Moses, this great figure, the greatest of all of Israel's people, comes into the story of faith. And what's interesting is when he gets brought into the story, uh, the, first, the first observation is not about his faith, but his parents' faith. Notice it. It's, it's about his parents' faith, not his faith. And what's interesting is you got to kind of back up and know the context of what the author is talking about, because in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, you have this context where Abraham's family had come to Egypt 400 years before. Abraham's family came to Egypt, and they were fleeing uh, the, the famine in their land, and they were seeking refuge. And so Israel's story really begins as a story of, of economic migrants. They were fleeing from their land to come to Egypt to find rest, to find refuge, to find a place where they could settle down. And at first, it was very welcoming. They welcomed them in, and, and the Egyptians were kind to them, and they had much favor with the Pharaoh, but then they began to multiply. And by the time you get to Exodus, they had been there for 400 years, and they had multiplied to millions and millions of Israelites, and now they were no longer welcomed. See, they were welcome when it wasn't a threat to their way of life, but now that there were so many Israelites, it was changing the way of life for the Egyptians. And Pharaoh said, we can't have any of that. So Pharaoh decides he's going to respond to the multiplication of Israel and, and the blessing that God had on them by putting out these oppressive policies. And so Pharaoh decides that he's going to, first strategy, kill all the sons. But he says he's going to do it through the Hebrew midwives, right? So he tells all the Hebrew midwives who were delivering the sons that you are to kill the sons, and the Hebrew midwives don't want to do it. They stand up to Pharaoh, and uh, two ladies named Shipra and Pua, they, they decide they're not going to 
they're, they're not going to give in to the king's edict. They're not going to do what he says. And so they resist, they rebel, and Pharaoh says, okay, well, if you won't do it, I'm going to send out an edict to everybody saying all, of the, all the Hebrew boys must die. You have to send them into the Nile as food for the crocodile. I mean, it was genocide. This was his strategy to, to take down what God was doing in God's people. And like the Hebrew midwives, Moses' parents decide that they're going to resist as well. And the Bible says that uh, they saw that the child was beautiful. It's fascinating. We, we don't actually know what they saw in Moses. We're, we're just told that, that they saw something. There was Jewish tradition that kind of developed out of this over time that said that maybe Moses' father had a, had a dream and, and God told him that Moses was going to be the deliverer. We, we don't know if that's true or not, but, but all we know from the scriptures is that they saw something in this child. Something about this child was, was speaking to them that, that God was going to do something great. and They didn't know how it was going to happen or what it was going to be, but they decided because that they just couldn't bring themselves to kill their own son. They decided to resist. We don't know what they saw, but we know what they believed, right? And, and, and they had faith that God was greater than whatever might happen, that he would be faithful through their son somehow. And so they hid Moses, the Bible says, for three months. And it says that they hid him because they didn't fear the Pharaoh's edict, but instead they feared God. They had a greater fear. They, they had a greater fear than what would happen with, 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 the, with the evil edict. They, they had a greater fear that Yahweh would, would care for them and love them. And so their fear was expressed in this fearless resistance. And that's how faith works. Our faith is always revealed by our fears. See, listen, not all faith, or sorry, not all fear is wrong. It's not that you fear, it's what you fear. You catch that? It's not that you fear, it's what you fear. And in fact, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about fear, it's often not what maybe you think of fear as terror or, or being afraid of something. It's actually more about trust. Fear is about what you trust. It's about what you put uh, your, your, your care into. It's about what you think is important and valuable and worthy. Right? That, that's what fear means in the Bible. And so the Bible really describes fear in two different kinds of ways. There's a fear of people. And there's a fear of God. And what the Bible says is, is you fear one or the other in the sense that you trust people the most or you trust God the most. It's what has the most weight, the most influence in your life. And in that, you find what your faith really is in. Right? It might be the fear of people. It might be the fear of Pharaoh. It might be the fear of your spouse, the fear of your kids, the fear of your friends, the fear of your boss, the fear of your political party. I mean, we're in, a, in such a divided nation right now. There's so much fear of people. And the fear of people keeps us from biblically resisting evil because we're afraid of the wrong things. Right? We see this in our polarized society. We see that there's conservative fear, there's progressive fear. And neither one, neither group is able to biblically resist evil because they're afraid. Right? Conservatives are, are willing to resist evil in things like abortion or sexuality. 
Progressives are willing to resist evil in things like racial injustice or caring for the marginalized, but neither group is able to address evil in every biblical form. You catch that? That's what you're seeing in our culture right now. You're, you're seeing the fear of people played out in politics. Because what, what happens is you're afraid of, of what might happen to your own group, right? right, right. We're, we're driven by the fear of people, people that we agree with, people that we don't want to disappoint, people that we benefit from, people that we work with, people that we're family members with. All of our fears are flipped. But listen, what would happen? What would happen if the church in this polarized society were to resist evil in all its forms? It would take a greater fear. It would take a fear of God that's greater than our fear of man. It would take a fear of God that's, that's greater than all the other fears. In other words, that doesn't mean that we don't love people, right? It actually means in order to love people properly, you have to fear God more. Let me say it this way. You have to love God more so that you can love people more. To fear God and not to fear people doesn't mean that you don't love people. It means that you want to love them truly. You want to love them wholly. You want to love in the way that God loves, which is, which is to say, I'm not afraid because I have a greater fear of someone who loves you and loves me more than anything else. And so because of my greater fear, I'm now free to love you. And so we need a greater fear than Pharaoh. We need a greater fear than our friends. We need a greater fear than our political ideologies. We need a greater fear than everything else we have. If we're going to resist by faith. See, faith resists because of its fear. And when you choose that kind of resistance, when you choose that kind of faith, it's a hard road. It's a difficult road. And this is the second point, a chosen road. Look at verse 24. Look at what's, what it says next. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, again, we continue the story here, and after three months of hiding Moses, his parents are probably paranoid that someone's going to find out they've had a child and, and, and Moses is going to get killed, and they might get killed as well for rebelling against the king's edict. And so they decide by faith to say, you know what, we're just going to trust God. We're going to put our baby in a basket, which, by the way, sidebar, this is the only other use of that term basket in Hebrew other than uh, the Ark of Noah. So there's a lot of imagery here of Noah's Ark coming down this Nile River, this river that was designed for death is now life. There's incredible imagery there. We don't have time to get into. But they send their son down the Nile River hoping that God would, would protect him in some way. And somehow, some way, God made a way out of no way. He, he brings the Pharaoh's daughter to the Nile River at the same time. She's at the Nile with her servants. She sees baby Moses in his basket and she thinks, oh, here's a Hebrew child all by himself. Let's bring him in. And she adopts him as her own, and she tells one of her servants to go find one of the Hebrew women who can nurse him and take care of him. And the servant goes and finds none other than Moses' mother. I mean, God's hand 
now Moses' mother is being paid by Pharaoh to live in Pharaoh's house and take care of her own child. And, And this is what happens. Now Moses is being raised by a Hebrew mother, his own mother, in the, in the privilege and power of the most powerful empire in the world. He's both Hebrew and Egyptian. And this is what happens. He, he feels something similar to what W.E.B. Du Bois called double consciousness. I don't know if you've heard of that term before. Du Bois uh, was among the founders of the NAACP and, and was the first black Harvard PhD. He, he was wrestling as, as one of these towering intellectuals in the early 20th century about his identity. As, as a black man and an American. And this is what he says as he reflects on that. He says, it's a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness. One feels his two-ness, an American and a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. And, and Moses, I believe, is, is wrestling with a very similar feeling where he hears this Hebrew man who, who looks out on, on his people who are the slaves of the Egyptians, and he knows that's his people. And yet here he is in Pharaoh's palace. He's wrestling with this odds within him that, that I'm both Hebrew and I'm Egyptian. What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live this life? And eventually he has to choose. And that choice would come one day when he's out walking among the people and he sees the ruthlessness of their slavery. He sees their exhausting work. He sees the abuse by the Egyptians. And then firsthand, he he sees an Egyptian strike one of the Hebrews and he just loses it. And it was at that moment that he makes his break. And Hebrews is referring to that where he makes this break where he, he refuses to no longer be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He decides, I'm going to no longer identify myself as an Egyptian. I'm going to identify with the Hebrews. I'm going to take on this identity that I no longer can be complicit with the Egyptians. I have to carry the burdens of my people. And he chose to identify with the oppression of God's people, choosing an identity that would invite suffering into his life, ultimately ending his life in the wilderness, where he never got to see the fulfillment of their liberation. He refused a life of comfort to walk in a life of conviction. Listen, choosing Christ means choosing a cross. The writer of Hebrews calls it the reproach of Christ, that Moses, thousands of years before Jesus, is choosing the reproach of Christ. He's choosing a cross. And don't miss what he's giving up, right? Moses is giving up the luxury of luxuries. He's giving up power and honor and privilege that that no one else could dream of in his people. He's giving up access to the Pharaoh. He's giving up treasures and, and pleasure. He's giving up every desire, every opportunity he could ever imagine at his fingertips. He's giving it all up for affliction, for pain. Charles Spurgeon preaching on this text, he said, if Moses gave this all up for the rewards of this life, he's the greatest of fools. He's the greatest of fools. See, Moses made a choice that makes no earthly sense. No 
earthly sense. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that you and I have the same choice today. It's the same invitation that Jesus said to his disciples when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up, him, take up his cross and follow me. Right? A cross, not a throne, not a crown, not a platform, not an Instagram. A cross to identify with Jesus is to identify with death. With death. See, Moses knew this choice. He knew that it was going to cost him everything. He knew he wouldn't be able to to continue with life as it was. He knew that he wouldn't be able to have his future plans the way that it was. He, He knew that things are going to change and would never be the same. He knew that he was leaving behind an old life to take on a new life, that it was going to cost him everything. And listen, you and I know that instinctively. You know that to follow Jesus in this world that that is so hostile to the cross will cost you. And if you don't feel that, you might not be following Jesus. You might not be following him. I mean, what keeps us from choosing Jesus and his cross? It's real simple. It's my idol of comfort. It's your idol of comfort. Right? Out, of, out of that idol of comfort, you, for a season, there might seem like there's more comfort in choosing to identify with the world. For a season, there might be more comfort in compromising our convictions. For a season, there might be more comfort in choosing a life that's complicit with Pharaoh rather than crucify with Jesus. But if you're making your choice on this life, on this world, then comfort is king. Eat, drink, be merry, you do you. Because that's all this world has to offer. But Moses saw something different. Moses saw a life beyond this life. Moses saw a reward beyond the pleasures of this world. And, 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 and so you've got to ask, how could someone make that kind of decision? It's because there was something greater beyond what we saw here. And this is the last point, a greater reward. Look at verse 26, how it ends. Verse 26, it says, He, that's Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, Moses didn't make some irrational choice. Faith is not opposed to reason. In fact, faith is very reasonable. It's just not the reason of this world. Faith is very reasonable, and in fact, what, what Jesus, or sorry, what the, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, is he uses this word considered, and the word considered was an accounting term. It means to count the worth of something, to calculate. So in other words, Moses ran the numbers. Moses ran the numbers. He did his study. He, he's weighing out what, what his options are. And he's saying, you know, here's what I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to lose my honor. I'm going to lose this pleasure. I'm going to lose this whole world that I've grown up in and I've benefited from and I, I've been a part of this. I'm going to lose all of that, but here is what I'm going to gain. And what he does is as he calculates it and he considers it, he realizes this is the easiest choice I've ever made. Because there was a greater reward to come. Moses' calculation wasn't based on what he could see in this life, but in the life to come. If it was based on this life, he would be the greatest of fools. But if it's based on another life, if it's based on something else, 
If it's based on this life, then he died in the wilderness as a fool. But if it's based on another life, there is hope with the eyes of faith. If it's based on another life, it's one that's not seen. It brings us back to the definition of faith in Hebrews 11, verse 1, that we began with. He said this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? Moses was convicted. He was sure that his reward in heaven, his reward beyond what he could see, was greater than what he might lose here. And so he gladly gave up everything. He laid it down because it was worth it. He laid it down because by faith he could see something greater. See, faith considers a reward that's greater than any cost it may be for you. Let me ask you, is $2,000 a lot of money? It depends, right? It depends. Uh, before Coca-Cola uh, began bottling their, their, their Coke, their, there was, it was actually just in a fountain drink form, right? Mr. Pemberton, who, who uh, invented Coca-Cola, he created this thing. It's a kind of a long story, but he created it basically in his backyard in this brass kettle on accident. And so he, he created it and realized that people liked it, and he started to mix it with soda water, and it became famous in their little town. It, w- it was being sold in a pharmacy, and, and then it spread to other pharmacies, and things were going really well, but he started to have really bad health, and so the business started suffering because of his health. And then along came this businessman named Mr. Candler, and Mr. Candler tried Coca-Cola for the first time, and he realized this is the future. And so he sees this man who's struggling in his business and realizes this is an opportunity for me to invest and to help him out with his personal needs. And so uh, Mr. Pemberton sells the rights to to make Coca-Cola for $2,300. $2,300. 25 years later, Mr. Candler would sell Coca-Cola for $25 million which today would be over $300 million in today's money. Is $2,000 a lot of money? It depends on what you get for it. It depends on what you get for it. See, you really give up nothing when you give up everything for Jesus. It may feel costly when you give up your comfort. It may feel costly when you give up your reputation. It may feel costly when you give up your political and social loyalties. It may feel costly, but it's the greatest deal you've ever considered. It's the easiest deal because in return, you gain God Himself. God Himself is the gospel. He is the reward that you desire. And so you gain the favor of your Father. You gain the treasure of His Son. You gain the hope of the Holy Spirit. You gain the mercy of eternity so that you can declare with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Right? Jesus makes His choice. Jesus chose to identify with those who were spiritually and physically oppressed. Jesus chose to to be with those who were oppressed by a society who saw them as a threat, who were oppressed in an economy that had no room for their prosperity, who were oppressed in an empire that values product over people. He came as one of us, identifying as us, as the suffering servant of God. But His greatest identification came in our oppression by sin. Of our sin, He came not only to suffer with us, but for us. For us. 
He saw the heavy burdens of our sin. He saw the weight of our shame. He saw the toil of our wickedness. And seeing us in our sin and misery, Jesus chose us. He chose us over everything else. He said, no one makes my life, or takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He joyfully gave all that he had, his own life, to gain us. The Bible says it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That's what carried him through. It was his joy for his Father's glory. It was his joy for his people's liberation. His joy for his people's redemption. His joy for his people's restoration. His joy was on full display on the cross. For all the world to see, there was joy as blood ran down his face. There was joy as pain plagued his body. There was joy as his lungs gasped for air. The agony of the cross shows the joy of our Savior. All to gain us. His life for your life. His death for your death. His everything for your everything. He made that choice. What choice are you going to make? That's the question that the text is burning, asking you to, to answer. Will it be the riches of this world or will it be the rewards of the world to come? That's the choice he's giving us. He's saying as we, as we think about faith and as we think about this world that we live in trying to endure, trying to figure out with the sin and misery that we all come up against, how do we endure? We choose the cross. Jesus invites you. He says, come, die. Stop trying to live on your own. Stop trying to make it work in, in your own strength, in your own ways. He's saying, come, follow me. But when you follow me, it means giving up everything else. Yeah. Every other loyalty, every other idol, every other God, every other comfort. And let me be your Savior. He's saying you, you have to choose at some point. You have to choose. Will you choose Jesus? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you chose us in our evil. You chose us when we were not worthy to be chosen. You chose us when we were full of rebellion, full of wickedness. We wanted nothing to do but cry out, crucify him, and spit in your face. And yet you chose us because you love us. You chose to identify with your own oppressors. You chose to identify with your own murderers. You chose to come and in our place take upon yourself all of our wickedness and endure through the hell of the cross for us. What love that is. What incredible grace and mercy you've shown to us, Lord. And as we Think about what it means to endure. We know that we endure with you next to us. You're the one who goes before us. You're the one who's beside us. You're the one who's behind us. You are the one who endured fully. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we ask today that as we try to endure in a culture that is hard to endure, we're asking for something that is not new, but this has been the challenge of faith for centuries. Centuries, Lord. You've always called us to choose you over everything else. And so we ask that you would give us the grace to do it. Empower us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.